Hi everyone, just a quick announcement before we get started. You've heard me talk a lot on here about the Kind Wealth Club and Clubhouse, these live conversations we're hosting on issues related to how we use and grow our wealth in ways that positively impact people and planet. We also, in those discussions, really dive into the complex social and environmental challenges our world is facing. And the idea is that no matter how much wealth we have, we can't solve problems that we don't understand. So we have actually created a website called kindwealth.club where you can go and check out the upcoming talks we're having. If you're not able to join us live for the conversations on Clubhouse, you can listen to the past recordings through the website and see them all there. Or you can actually just search for Kind Wealth Club, the podcast. And so you can listen to it as a normal podcast through any podcast player you subscribe to. And if you're on iOS right now, Clubhouse is only limited to iOS for now. I hope you'll come join us live for these discussions. They're fascinating, and I think it's a lot more interesting than passively listening. If you're not on iOS, they are furiously working on an Android version, and it should be available within the next month or two. So I'm really hopeful that there will be fewer barriers for folks to join us live for the discussions. And last thing, my regular appeal for if you're enjoying this podcast and you can take a moment to go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review... I would really appreciate it. It really does mean a lot to me and to helping us surface and help other people find this. So with that, let's get on to the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Welcome to episode 27 of the Impact Investing Podcast. Private equity can be a wonderful thing. The combination of capital and expertise provided by private equity investors can help companies to grow and create jobs. This is particularly true for smaller and mid-sized companies, which tend to be the engines of job growth. But at the same time, traditional private equity structures have contributed to wealth inequality, not just for executives of the portfolio companies, but for their employees and the communities they operate in. In this episode of the Impact Investing Podcast, I caught up with Delilah Rothenberg, founder and executive director of the Pre-Distribution Initiative. The Pre-Distribution Initiative is a multi-stakeholder project designed to co-create improved investment structures that lead to a more equitable outcome for all. Their goal is to share more wealth with workers and communities, incentivize investment teams for social, environmental, and governance integration, and ultimately make sure that systemic risks like income inequality and climate change are addressed. In our conversation, Delilah and I discussed the many challenges within traditional private equity structures from outsized influence to unfair profit distribution and market instability, plus what investment professionals at all levels of the playing field can do to solve them. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end, where we discuss how the pre-distribution initiative is exploring new solutions to these traditional private equity issues. With that, let's dive into the podcast. Delilah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. We met at the Nexus Summit, I guess it must have been a couple of years ago now. 
And I remember, you know, we, I think, bumped into each other in between a session. And the takeaway that I got, I think you had more to share, but the thing that stuck in my head was the work that you were doing around investment manager compensation and wealth inequality, in particular, I think, in the kind of private equity space. And I had done you know, a fair bit of commentary and research on compensation in the mutual fund space. And to the extent that increasingly mutual funds were copying this hedge fund private equity 2 and 20 performance fee type of model, it was a bad habit. I think that the mutual fund companies were picking up from, <laughs> or habit's a wrong word. It was an intentional choice because it's such a lucrative model. So that always stuck out in my head. And I remembered you clearly from that uh, summit. Yeah, it was really great connecting there. And how much has changed since then? Yeah, that feels like forever ago, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really does. Even some aspects of the pre-distribution initiative have changed. Definitely still a focus on fund manager compensation. And it's really fascinating to also hear you say, that some of these issues are starting to pop up in the mutual fund industry because that's something that actually has not been on my radar. So I'm intrigued and want to look into it. Yeah, sure. We'll get into the compensation side. I know that your work is is more than just the the compensation. So we'll also get into that, but I would love to dive into that because I it's an insidious practice. So anyway, I think it'll be an interesting discussion, but maybe just start and introduce everybody to yourself in the pre-distribution initiative. Sure. I think you all know at this point, my name is Delilah Rothenberg, and I'm the founder and executive director of the Pre-Distribution Initiative. I actually have an amazing founding team that was involved from the very beginning of starting as well. So I, I should say I'm a co-founder, although I've been the initial main employee of the initiative and came up with some of these issues that we initially started to focus on. The Pre-Distribution Initiative is a multi-stakeholder project designed to co-create improved investment structures, particularly for mainstream markets with risk-adjusted returns that share more wealth and governance control with workers and communities, and that have stronger incentives for investment teams to integrate ESG, and that ultimately, through these adjustments, really address systemic risks, including inequality and climate change. And, and I guess we can get into that as you'd like, Dave, but that's generally the, uh, the brief intro. So uh, when you're in your focus, when you talk about investment structures, my understanding anyway, you correct me if I'm wrong, is that your focus is on the private markets more than the public markets. Is that fair to say or no? Yeah, I would say that initially we were solely focused on private markets. I think that as we came to understand the issues more, we realized that there are a lot of issues that are a focus for us in the private markets that are also relevant in public markets. And everything's really interconnected. So it's hard to only say that we're focused on private markets. Private markets are growing because public markets are shrinking, for instance. There are certainly some trends related to index funds and corporate consolidation that are intertwined with private markets as well. So the reason why I think we continue to have such a strong focus on private markets is because in private markets, investors have more opportunity to get involved with and influence the capital structure of the portfolio companies, as well as the governance control of the companies. And so even though we've started to realize that the issues that we're focused on are widespread across asset classes, private markets are a great sort of laboratory to um, try out new capital structures and investment products and governance structures. Yeah, that, that makes sense. What, just for those who may be listening and aren't as familiar with the private markets, 
why is it that there's more of an opportunity to have an influence in the private markets? When you think about a private equity fund, and I'm not sure how much of the audience is familiar with private equity, so I'll just take a step back and break it down. Private equity funds frequently have institutional investors. Sometimes they have non-institutional investors like families and high net worth individuals. But the markets are very heavily influenced by institutional investors, so pension funds, insurance companies, solvent wealth funds, endowments, and they have significant amounts of capital that they need to put to work, and they invest in all different asset classes, these institutional investors, but a particularly attractive asset class for them over the past few decades has been private equity. Now, private equity is still a small fraction of their portfolio, but it generally has historically had higher rates of return than other asset classes. And in a low interest rate environment, that's particularly attractive to large institutional investors. And as I mentioned, a similar dynamic, although it's a little bit of a, a circular reference or dynamic, public markets are shrinking and private markets are growing. So in order to stay diversified, institutional investors are very interested in private equity. The way it works is they take this money and they find some fund managers who manage private equity funds, and these institutional investors will invest in a fund. And so the investors in this case are called LPs or limited partners, and the fund manager is called the GP or the general partner. And limited partners will allocate tens or 100 million, let's say, of millions of dollars into a fund alongside other investors who invest you know, different amounts. And let's say then you have a, a billion dollar fund that's one of many funds managed by a private equity fund manager. And then that billion dollar fund takes the committed capital from the limited partners and draws it down over time to invest in a portfolio of companies. So a billion dollar fund might invest in 10 different portfolio companies over the course of three or so years. And then it will hold those portfolio companies and grow them or restructure them to generate profits within maybe a three to seven year time horizon, and then eventually sell those companies and uh, return profits to the limited partners. And so the general partners, for the most part, in control during the investment period, a lot of disc discretion or control is, is given to the GP in the structure or relationship. And the LPs are more hands-off and, and passive during the period. But general partners and their funds might have a particular strategy. They might have a growth strategy. They might have a leveraged buyout strategy. They might have a distressed investment strategy. They might invest in particular geographies and particular industries. And it's a very diverse industry in terms of strategy and growing significantly. Yeah, it, it feels to me, certainly I've noticed that change pretty dramatically in, in my career specifically, like it's just the amount of time, tension, and the I think the sexiness of the private equity markets has radically changed in the years that I've been <laughs> in the industries. And I came from the kind of public markets investment research side of things. Yeah, that's all really well said. And so these, these private equity uh, funds, essentially their job, right, is to go and source private company investments to make. And they have to think about how to obviously structure those investments. And I think because the, the return potential is there, there's also a lot of money in it. And so this is partly, I think, what is making private equity attractive for firms that run it and why we're getting more and more individuals and those people focused on that sector of the market. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that historically, the private equity asset class has produced outsized returns relative to other asset classes. And 
I'm not sure that's going to continue to be the case. Part of the reason is because so much money has flooded the asset class and in significant chunks, right? So you've got these institutional investors, they put a lot of money to work at a time in these funds. And then the funds, therefore, have often several billion dollars to put to work and they will pursue some of the largest deal opportunities or portfolio companies available. And one of the things that we're looking at the pre-distribution initiative that we're concerned is happening is that there's so much money chasing some of the same deals and mm -hmm. pushing up the valuations. There are even situations now where private equity firms are selling a portfolio company to another private equity firm for an exit and an LP might be invested in both of those funds, the selling fund and the buying fund, and, and ends up paying the premium on that sale. But aside from that, just in general, when too much money floods an asset class, the valuations get pushed up and the returns become harder to come by. And that actually puts a lot of pressure on large fund managers doing large deals to cut costs, which can be related to quality jobs, cutting benefits, outsourcing labor, layering on debt to the portfolio company to magnify returns because debt is so cheap, although you still have to service the debt. And this can put pressure on a capital structure and therefore the way the business operates. If leverage ratios are too high if the, or if the debt can't be serviced, then that can push a company to the point of potential bankruptcy or restructuring, and that can jeopardize workers, of course, and communities and who depend on that company. And we're in a situation now where not only are valuations so high that returns are harder to come by, but squeezing the returns out of the companies can put pressure on other stakeholders of the company, like workers and communities, particularly in the case of real assets, we talk about communities. These are some of the issues that we're really exploring right now at the pre-distribution initiative and trying to understand better. Yeah, that's really great. You touched on a nuance there that I, I just want to tease out in terms of the difference between private equity and, and public equity. And in the case of private equity, you've got really large funds taking sometimes really meaningful positions in small, medium, private companies. And private companies tend to be smaller on average than public companies. And because they have a relatively big stake in a relatively small company, they have an outsized, a disproportionate say in the operations of the business, right? Compared to public equity. Yeah. And so their ability to have an influence on how the company is financially managed, its strategy, its choices, and how it operates is is outsized as well. So I think the point you're making here is a bigger problem in the private markets because they have this outsized influence to say, get a company to take on more debt and lever up, which then, as you're saying, has both the effect of increasing the amount of risk involved, but then also making the company that it's invested in less financially um, resilient. And so if they do stumble financially, then they become more likely to have to cut benefits yeah. and pensions and lay people off and stuff like that. Is that the argument? Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple of things that um, I'm realizing. Sometimes you have this background knowledge in the back of your head and you think that other people know what it means, so you forget to explain those details. 
I'm glad that you touched on the point about governance control. And I know I mentioned it before, but I do think, as you highlighted, it's important to be a little bit more specific about it. Some private equity firms take minority stakes in their portfolio companies. And if you have a minority stake, you might not be able to negotiate board seats and really influence the way the company is governed and the capital structure of the company. Some private equity firms take majority stakes and governance control. And I should say that even if you have a minority stake, you might be able to negotiate certain governance rights, but but those are a lot of nuances and you know details that we don't need to go into. I think generally speaking, it's helpful to know that you can have, that typically governance control comes with majority stakes and larger stakes in companies and private equity firms can when they acquire a company, use less of their own equity and and actually use debt to acquire the portfolio company, but the debt is at the portfolio company level. And it's the portfolio company's responsibility to repay that debt and sometimes to restructure, to service the debt. And it's not at the, the fund level. And I think that's an important distinction. That's what you typically would call an, a leveraged buyout strategy. And then once the company is in the portfolio, there have also been practices known as dividend recapitalizations, where a private equity fund manager who has governance influence can say, we want to pay ourselves and our investors dividends. And so we're going to put even more debt on this company or put debt on this company and then essentially more or less have it paid to us in dividends. And that can put companies in a very precarious situation as well. And there's rising concern about that. The other thing that I didn't mention before, this is turning into a private equity 101 session, but (laughs) we're going to get into compensation, I know, later. But in all of this, it's important to note that the private equity fund manager is compensated by its LPs. The GP is compensated by its LPs with what's generally a 2% annual or 1.5% annual management fee applied to the invested capital. And the GP also typically gets about 20% of the overall profits from the portfolio companies after a hurdle rate, which is often set at 8%. The LPs generally are expecting mid to high teens. Some would say it used to be in the 20% range in terms of returns from the funds. And that's typically measured as an IRR or internal rate of return. But there's a payment waterfall that happens. And so the GP would get 20% of the overall absolute returns after an 8% hurdle to the LPs, if that makes sense. Yeah. The idea here is that there's some sort of base annual amount, which is, by the way, not an unhealthy amount of money that the, these kind of PE firms take regardless of what happens to the performance of their fund. Yeah. And then there's a performance fee that if they exceed a certain minimum rate of return above and beyond that, then they take a, a percentage of the profit above that hurdle rate, if you will. And so ostensibly, they have a alignment of interest with their investors that they have a strong incentive to produce outsized returns. And I think what I want to unpack with you in a little bit is where the kind of breakdown in those structures and uh, uh, that logic lies. Let's circle back to it. I'd love to actually just pause for a moment because if we don't, we're just going to plow right through and I don't want to miss it, which is you've just got a really interesting background and I'd love to hear about how you got involved in the heart of these sort of private equity, pretty nuanced discussions of private equity and the sort of the thick of it. I think your under your sort of education background is got a history degree, don't you? 
Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your background. Where'd you come from? What'd you study? How did you get into this, involved in all this? Sure, yeah. I grew up in a suburb of Syracuse, New York, a place that's near and dear to my heart. And I left the Syracuse area around 17 to go to college at New York University in New York and um, triple majored in history, politics, and African studies and thought that I would, I don't know, work in, in the nonprofit industry or non-governmental organization industry, the UN, or maybe in government. I also really had this wonderful idea that still really resonates with me about being a history professor. But toward the end of my college education, I ended up spending a summer volunteering in Tanzania, teaching English. And I studied with Bill Easterly, who was one of the first proponents of trade versus aid. And he used to be an economist with the World Bank. And I was relatively critical of development finance at the time. I don't know if Bill and I would agree on everything at this point of my career and his career, but he really had a strong influence on my thinking early on because I felt that the NGO I was doing volunteer work with in Tanzania was doing more harm than good and more disruptive. It had a little bit of a sense of us from the developed world have so much to teach these people in Tanzania and I don't know that we really had such, the volunteers like myself and others really had such applicable skill sets that, that local people could learn from. I was placed in a class to teach English alongside a teacher who was doing just a great job of teaching me already. And I didn't want to interrupt her curriculum. I'm sure maybe it was helpful to be around somebody who is a native English speaker, but it still had this feeling of hegemony and neo-imperialism neocolonialism and I that's what I was studying in school and it just didn't sit well with me and I remember walking mm. down the street one day in Tanzania from school to where I was living in a village and I thought the people that I'm talking to are really interested in what my life is like in New York and they want a lot of the same things as me and I was passing a um, family-owned business that was making cinder blocks and I thought if this family-owned business had some capital and some skills training in terms of business training, then they could grow their business from a grassroots level up and have um, sustainable income streams. And Tanzania wouldn't be so dependent on aid, like the group I was working with that didn't really have anything to do with building capacity for businesses. And I became interested in building capacity for small, medium-sized enterprises. I decided that I should go into finance. I didn't know of any one at the time that was really focused on impact investing. And it was 2003 or 2004, I graduated in 2004. And I went back to New York and I pulled my dreadlocks back in a ponytail and tried to look professional and crashed in NYU Stern Career Fair and ended up getting a job in what was then a boutique, a sell-side research firm. And then I spent two years there and then I went to Bear Stearns and I was at Bear Stearns for two years up until the financial crisis doing institutional equity research sales. Were you there during the collapse? Yeah, I was. Oh, it was oh, that, fascinating, uh, oh, scary, but fascinating experience. It was. I think I was young enough where I really didn't have as much to lose as my colleagues. And to me, it was fascinating. And I was on the trading floor. That's where I worked. So I was there when the stock dropped. I was there when the head of our division jumped on a desk and all the traders crowded around him. And he was trying to convince us that everything was going to be okay. It was definitely a good lesson in a systemic risk. But I knew at that point that I wanted to get into private equity. And I was fortunate enough to know somebody at Bear who introduced me to one of the leading private equity investors in Africa at the time. 
And then I was able to really make the switch to focus on what I wanted to focus on because I went into finance really not understanding the asset classes and everything. So the first four years of my career were figuring it all out. Yeah, I mean, for I think those in the financial markets, the 2008 financial crisis in particular, what happened with Bear Stearns is a little 9-11. Like, where were you when you heard that news? I remember it clear as day because it just sort of hit you like a ton of bricks. A lot of my career has a strong thread of risk management focus. And by the way, I was living not too far away from the World Trade Center during 9-11. I wasn't able to go home for two days because the streets were blocked off. And that was really a shocking experience as well. So I think that it's a good point that you brought up. A lot of my career has been shaped by crises. A lot of my thinking has been shaped by crises. That's interesting. And, and just so we're clear, I don't mean to equate those two things at all, but just the loose thread between them is just the shock of something you know really unexpected happening and Bear Stearns, given its history and size and all that, it was really jarring for anybody who followed you know, the markets closely and knew the organization. Okay, so then you got into private equity from Bear Stearns, is that right? Yeah, my early days in private equity were really focused on raising capital. I managed financial models and put together pitch decks and pitched investors. And I, I worked not too much on deals in my first six months or so, but then I, I started a consulting practice to be contracted with different players in private equity and project development and project finance, because investing into Africa out of New York was a relatively small, was a very small industry, I should say at the time. So there, there wasn't a ton of opportunity in the space, but I started to do that work. And I got involved with a really controversial project in West Africa in the agribusiness space and became responsible pretty quickly for tasked with trying to make sure that the operations were sustainable. And there were a number of complex governance issues to navigate in that project. And I eventually, despite becoming very well versed in what was ESG and impact investing, then it was just very challenging. And so that also <laughs> shaped a lot of my thinking. Anyway, over time, I started to shift from just focusing on Sub-Saharan Africa to also developed markets. And I started to realize through all of my experiences that there are some structural issues in the way private investments are designed that really produce some tensions with strong ESG integration and impact goals. And so that's when I decided to leave the industry around 2017. I think I started to think about it in 2018. I put in my notice with my main two clients, and then I got a fellowship to start the pre-distribution initiative. Yeah, the Open Society Fellowship, and that's all funded through the George Soros Foundation. Is that right? Yeah, I'm very grateful to OSF, um, Open Society Foundations, for their early support. They were really wonderful to work with. Very cool. So they have a number of, I'm assuming, grant opportunities for people who are like trying to solve different problems that are aligned with their, their mission? In my case, I just happened to start thinking about these issues at a time when they had a fellowship opportunity focused on economic inequality. And so it aligned very well with my area of focus. But they occasionally have different fellowship opportunities focused on different aspects of social justice. And OSF has a very wide focus on social justice. So they have legal and policy teams and grantees who focus on those issues. I believe they include a focus on disability rights, a focus on 
democracy and open societies. So it's a very wide lens in terms of social justice issues. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So that's how the pre-distribution initiative got its start with funding there. And I'm curious, you describe it as a multi-stakeholder project. So does it have a sort of a defined life period or is it an ongoing initiative that will just continue to to operate? That's an interesting question. I think when we first started, we weren't sure about that. It does seem like there is a lot of work due in the future. So it probably will be an ongoing initiative. Maybe we should readjust our language based on that. So thank you, Dave, for mentioning it. But when we first started, we thought that what we would do is bring together GPs and LPs and labor advocates and civil society to discuss some of the tensions that we were seeing in the investment structures and workshop or co-create improved investment structures to address some of these tensions. We actually believe that private equity can be a strong source of sustainable capital, partly because of the governance influence and ability to influence capital structure. It's a double-edged sword. If it's used in ways that put companies and their stakeholders in precarious situations, then that's not a great thing. But if that opportunity of influence is used for regenerative investment structures and to have elements of multi-stakeholder governance, then that is an incredible opportunity for uh, broader societies and our economies. And that's what we're really focused on. And we thought that perhaps after a couple of years, we could come up with more regenerative structures. We could play around with a management fee and carried interest so that the management fee for some of the mega fund managers wouldn't be so egregious that it results in such high compensation for executives relative to other stakeholders in the capital markets value chain, as we call it, and that carried interest perhaps or profits from portfolio companies could be engineered to share more of the wealth with workers and communities. And perhaps the governance of the portfolio companies themselves or even the funds could include elements of other stakeholders' influence besides just investors. Maybe there could be workers on boards of portfolio companies or community members in the case of infrastructure assets or real estate assets. So there's a great opportunity to workshop these different changes to private equity to make it more regenerative and beneficial for society. And that's what we had initially set out to do. So let's dive back into some of the conversation we were just having there. If you'll indulge me, I'm going to maybe take an attempt at summarizing a bit of what we were talking about and tell me if I have it straight or if I'm missing anything or I'm just wrong. And I know your work isn't only focused on private equity, but we'll stay here for now. In the private equity space, there's a proliferation of leveraged investment products and strategies that are growing to meet the demand, basically interest rates being so low, it's a real opportunity to take on debt to magnify returns. And so that this is leading to private equity managers to be able to magnify their returns, either to finance, essentially, you mentioned dividend recaps, which we gave a brief description of, but also fuel things like M&A activity or things like that. And so these either result in more money directly to paid out to private equity owners, or even in the case of M&A, like consolidation, just for anti-competitiveness, there's lack of competition. And so all of these things are good for the private equity investors and maybe not so good for the broader public at large, and more importantly, like other stakeholders like employees, for instance. Is that maybe a crude but fair summary? 
Yeah, I think it's a fair high-level summary. I think that I might add to the end of that that these dynamics create negative impacts for workers and communities and other stakeholders, but they also ironically create negative impacts for the LPs themselves and these risks that get dispersed or disproportionately shared by workers and communities without commensurate compensation for taking that risk creates a fragile economy. And if you're a large institutional investor or what they sometimes call universal owners of the market, you own every industry, every geography, every asset class. So Essentially, these large institutional LPs, these universal owners, are exposed to systematic risks, as it's referred to in the financial world, market instability because of weak capital structures, because of income inequality, because of secular stagnation, because of the wealth. They don't spend as much of their wealth as lower income people do. Their marginal propensity to spend is lower. So not as much money circulates through the economy. And as you mentioned, there's corporate consolidation. And so there's not a lot of diversification. Returns start to get eroded away. Valuations increase. It becomes a very difficult situation for these LPs. So I think that longer term risk is important to highlight. It's one of the things that we've really started to turn our attention to because in the near term, yeah, the investors, the GPs, and the LPs might be getting higher returns by adding more leverage to portfolio companies, by cutting costs, sometimes that are related to quality jobs. But in the long run, this really erodes the stability of financial markets and boomerangs back to the LPs. And so how do we build capacity with LPs to think about these more systematic risks that jeopardize their ability to pay their long-term liabilities or have their long-term return goals? And just to put some color around what we're talking about here when we talk about high leverage. Non-financial corporate debt has more than doubled at this point since the global financial crisis. And leverage ratios are at historical highs for corporate debt. And covenants uh, or investor protections are pretty light. And a lot of people will say, we haven't really seen the defaults that we were expecting yet in this COVID crisis. And might start to call it a financial crisis, but there's some argument around whether to call it that at this point or not. Part of that argument has to do with the fact that the Fed has come in, well, not just the Fed, but the Federal Reserve, the ECB, the Bank of England, central banks have really come in to rescue financial markets. But rescue, I would say, with a question mark, because they're just using the same tools that they use from the global financial crisis, low interest rates, quantitative easing, which, as we noted before, incentivizes more debt. And so we're just getting ourselves further into a debt trap where it's not really clear what that's going to do to the resiliency of corporate balance sheets and of the economy and society and where returns are going to come from if low interest rates push up asset valuations. And so as the valuations go up, as we mentioned, returns go down. So it's a little concerning in the long term. Not clear what's going to happen. Yeah. And so it just seems to me that the sort of, for again, a risk of oversimplifying it, unchecked greed is just leading people to sort of push the boundaries because no one's thinking about the broader risks. It's just like, how can I maximize my returns? Meanwhile, there's a lot of unintended consequences from that. Yeah. Here's what I would say. I'd say that in some cases, we could call it greed, but more often than not in private equity, a lot of the capital is coming from institutional investors. And I would say that these actions are coming from fear. So fear that we can't 
generate the returns that we need to, that are expected of us by our bosses or by our investors or by our institutions. If you're a pension fund and you have to pay out your liabilities and your board of directors is measuring your performance on an annual basis and relative to financial benchmarks that aren't really relevant anymore because we're in a totally different interest rate environment and historical financial benchmarks are based on years of exploitative practices of cheap or free human and natural capital. It's really hard to generate the returns that are expected of you as an investment professional without layering on the debt and doing the financial engineering and investing in the large consolidated businesses and asset managers. And it's a collective problem where I don't think we can be really so angry or judgmental at these investment professionals who are making these decisions because they're just responding to the incentives that have been set for them and operating within a paradigm that they've grown up in. And we're trying to design these co-creation forums with a sense of empathy and understanding for these individuals and why they make the decisions that they do. And that's why we really have this project right now that's the Asset Owner and Allocator Capacity Building and Research Project to support some of the investors that set the incentives from the very top of the capital markets value chain in changing the way they evaluate their own financial performance to be longer term in nature and account for systematic risks in a more holistic way. I'm glad you bring up the complexities of the situation because I don't want to make it overly reductive. And this is a genuine question because I'm not as familiar with the private equity markets as I am other public markets and other areas. But how often is it the case that an institutional pension is responsible for leveraging and sort of really pushing the limits of leverage on the portfolio companies as opposed to the general partners who have the performance fee incentive to really shoot the lights out. Yeah. Some institutional investors, some pension funds, insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds will do direct investments themselves. And so in those cases, they might be responsible for engineering the capital structure of a portfolio company. More often than not, institutional investors are investing through fund managers who, as you rightly imply, are the ones responsible for engineering the capital structures of the portfolio companies and determining how much leverage and when and for what uses. But having worked myself, not only for private equity fund managers, but also for project developers that have been portfolio companies of private equity funds and having managed financial models, I can say that the pressure to magnify returns comes from the top. It comes from the LPs. It comes from the ultimate investor. So if that ultimate investor is saying, I'm going to invest in your private equity fund because I'm expecting a high teens return and or a 20% return, which I mean, many would say is not likely anymore, but that's in the stereotype of what to expect from private equity in the past. That puts pressure on the fund manager to generate that return. So then they put pressure on the portfolio companies to generate that return. That's where the incentive really comes from by the GP and the portfolio companies to layer on debt, to cut costs. And I think that it's really important for us all to take a step back and say, what kinds of returns are reasonable from this particular style of private equity, given the environment that we're in today? And how can we sustainably generate returns 
And maybe that also means even asset owners and allocators, these large institutional investors, taking a step back and looking at their portfolio and saying, okay, large LBO private equity might not be performing the way it used to. So where else can we get the returns that we need across asset classes? And should we reconsider asset allocation? Or should we work with our private equity fund managers, because a lot of the large private equity fund managers are actually being creative with new products now. Can we work with our existing fund managers, because we like them, we trust them, they're good relationships, to change the structure of their investments, to be more regenerative, to be more long-term? There are changes that are being made in the private equity industry now where large fund managers are having longer dated funds. So instead of 10-year closed-end fund, which is typical, they might have a permanent capital vehicle like an evergreen fund that stays open. So there's not as much pressure to exit an investment quickly and generate returns. There are newer, more niche strategies of doing revenue-based financing or equity redemptions, which can be better for a portfolio company and generate some interesting risk-adjusted returns, not quite private equity style, but if we were to reconsider portfolio construction and asset allocation and asset owner and allocator level, it could probably help those asset owners and allocators, those institutional investors meet their blended 7-ish percent targeted return across asset classes. There's deconsolidation of capital flows that might help with all of this. Anyway, I think I'm rambling and I got very far away from your original question. No, that's okay. I do want to touch on on those things because the suggested solution, it's plumbing the depths of a problem is certainly an important aspect, but it's also feels good to be able to discuss some possible solutions to, to problems. But I, I do want to continue along the, the initial point you're making there in that the limited partners, the pension funds, or the pressures coming from the top, to me, this sort of speaks to the heart of the performance fee problem, which you know, I'd lo- love to dive into here. And again, I genuinely look to your, your response here because I'm not familiar on, on the private equity side, but the problem with the performance fee model is that the limited partners, so the ones running the fund, at least in the mutual fund space, it's often the case, and I'm curious what the case is in the private equity space, don't have anywhere near the same amount of their their own financial capital on the line. And so what they have is this sort of asymmetric risk reward payoff that comes with the performance of the fund where, hey, if we shoot the lights out, we're going to generate this fat performance fee. And if we blow up the portfolio, it wasn't our capital. And certainly that's not a an ideal outcome. And I wouldn't suggest that a lot of mutual fund managers with performance fees are running around like absolute reckless with reckless abandon. But it certainly skews your incentives to take on more risk when you don't suffer the consequences. Whereas the general partners would be thinking about the risks of over-leveraging. And unless the private equity, the general partners have their own capital on the line, they don't have that same kind of financial repercussions. While they may have pressure from the top to improve their returns and to maximize returns, I'm sure the performance fee structure doesn't help any, it doesn't put any checks and balances in place. Time for a quick break from our sponsor. The world of personal finance is full of strange and wonderful rules. And honestly, it makes optimizing your finances nearly impossible unless you're a professional. Is it better to use an RRSP or a TFSA? Are you making the most of your employer pension and benefits? What should you do with company stock or options? How does your business fit into your long-term financial plan? These are just a fraction of the questions Canadians struggle with. 
the confusion can lead to choices that end up costing thousands of dollars a year. Kind Wealth can help you make the most of your money by offering high-quality financial advice. No sales commissions, no hidden fees, no long-term contracts. Just honest advice at a price you can afford. Visit kindwealth.ca to learn more. And now, back to the podcast. Yeah, that's right. The GP who generally manages the investments typically has to put some of their own capital into the fund as a requirement by the LPs, but it's a very low percentage of the fund, low single digits often. And so they don't have as much skin in the game, so to speak, as the LPs. And I just want to highlight, this is a bit of a tangent, so I hope I remember to go back to my main point. But one interesting thing about requiring the GPs to put a certain percentage of their own capital into the fund, it's a double-edged sword because, yeah, it requires them to have some skin in the game, but it also can be a barrier to entry in the industry for emerging fund managers who haven't quite built up that wealth yet. So interesting data point for everybody there. Going back to the main question, we'll just say this. GPs, despite the fact that they don't have very much of their own capital in the fund, it's not in their best interest to produce poor returns because they want to raise the next fund. That's the real goal, I think, of most GPs is not just to raise one fund and then you're done. In fact, it's very difficult to raise a first-time fund, as I alluded to before, but really for a lot of reasons. And when you do raise a first-time fund, it's generally quite small. So 2% management fee and 20% carried interest on a $150 million fund, for instance, or maybe if you're lucky, $300 million is not that lucrative. You really have to do a lot of work and spread the wealth across the team and generate returns and then have a second fund or a third fund or a fourth fund to really get to the point where the private equity management business becomes quite lucrative. And that's why it's important for GPs to generate good returns for their LPs and why I think that they do really focus on generating good returns for them. Yeah, I think that may be a mutation that occurs in the mutual fund industry. And I think loosely the same principle applies that generally speaking, the better your track record is, the easier it will be to attract investment dollars. But in the mutual fund space, especially if you're talking about a larger organization where they have offered many funds across different asset classes, one fund blowing up and the marketing dollars they put into it. And also the fact that they're targeting a retail, you know, unsophisticated investor who doesn't, there's a number of compounding problems. The funds are sold through advisors who are compensated through commissions in Canada. It's worse than in the US, but you've got this whole system where you can still market and sell funds offered by a company that's blown up. You just shut the fund down, you start a new one, and it's just not the end of the world. And it should be a stain, but it's often easy time to cover up that stain. And so I think in the private equity market, that's probably a lot harder to do. So maybe that kind of self-regulating feature is stronger. Track record is so important in private equity, which is why it's hard to raise a first-time fund or even a second-time fund. Yeah, I wanted to mention, though, on the part about the double-edged sword, when I was at Morningstar, we were evaluating mutual funds, and that was one of the things we did was talked about a lot about fee structures and increasingly if there was a performance fee structure how it worked. And we talked about things like whether the managers invested in their own funds. And uh, when we started asking for that data, unlike in the United States, it's not a requirement of the regulators in Canada that a mutual fund manager disclose how much money they have invested in a fund that they run. And uh, so we got a lot of pushback from the industry about, oh, why all the reasons why that's unreasonable to ask 
ask for this information. And there's just, it would be things like if you run a sector fund or a bond fund and you're relatively young, you're not going to have a big percentage of your wealth tied up in a bond fund because it's not a reasonable asset allocation. Or if you've got to run a sector, a niche fund, then you shouldn't have too many dollars tied up in something so risky, it wouldn't be prudent. And so it's unreasonable for us to expect it. And so in this case, the double-edged sword, I think is a really fair point about, you know, how do we require that managers invest in, in the fund, but not present a barrier to those who maybe don't have the same wealth. But let's just get more creative about the measures we use. So instead of saying, what percentage of the fund do they have their own dollars tied up? Maybe if you're under, for those from historically excluded or marginalized groups, then we're taking it as a percentage of their income. I, I, I have to be other measures we can use that sort of get around that problem. But still, listen, if somebody makes $50,000 a year and they put 50 grand into an investment, I, I'm pretty sure they're going to have a lot of concern about a year's worth of income, <laughs> potentially losing an entire year's worth of income, whereas $50,000 for somebody who's worth millions is, is not a big amount. So I just think there's probably some creative solutions that we can use to ensure this alignment of interest. And I think it's hard to replicate with manufactured rules, an alignment of interest that naturally exists when it's your own money on the line. Absolutely. I think that what you propose is a really creative and strong solution. I think that part of the problem with this industry changing is that it's become so institutionalized and it's just easier and it's safer for investment professionals at the LP level to go with what they know. Nobody ever got fired for hiring McKinsey or IBM or Blackstone or KKR or Carlisle. And there's not really a strong incentive on the LP's part to change often. And that's often because of career risk or the time and resources that it takes to think through creative new structure and the transaction costs relative to the expected returns matter. And you don't want to be that investment professional or that investment consultant to an LP that recommends something different and the investment doesn't go well and then it blows up in your face. And there's a lot to really workshop there with folks at the LP level and their consultants in terms of being more creative. And like I said, in the beginning of our podcast, they have a lot of capital, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars to put to work. And that means that it's easier for these LPs, these asset owners and allocators, to invest large chunks of money at a time. And they have what they call a concentration limit. So they can't be too large of a percent of any particular fund. And so that makes it hard for them to invest in the smaller emerging managers as well. And it just results in the situation where so much money is flowing to the largest managers. And if you you know take a quick search on the results of where the industry is going, there's a huge consolidation of capital among the largest managers, which then flows down to result in consolidation of capital among corporates and consolidation of corporates. And it's really not healthy for the economy. So uh, lots of work to do in terms of unpacking those issues. Yeah. And I want to clarify, I, I genuinely don't think the industry is full of people who are sitting around gnashing their teeth, trying to find ways to exploit people and hurt others for every last penny they can earn. But I think you alluded to it in your comments just now. It's like, but I do think the industry is full of people who are primarily focused on how do I make, not primarily, but like it's a disproportionate focus. How much, how can I maximize my wealth and what do I have to do and and spend disproportionately little time thinking about 
the broader system as a whole, the thinking about individuals and other stakeholders through the process and how do we be more equitable about this and how do I you know make money while also leaving some for others and, and being fair about this and thinking about those other things. And so that's a problem when you do that at scale and we've got an industry that I think gives you license to because we've had this shareholder primacy focus, right? Like that was what we learned in school was like your job is to maximize shareholder value and that's your sole objective. And so you just have license to think that way. And it's problematic at scale when everybody does that. Yeah, I think that the point you mentioned about school is so important. We really need to change the way we're teaching these emerging investment professionals in terms of their priorities, the paradigm we're in. And that a, a big part of that is school and education. These people are often just responding to the incentives that are put in front of them. They're doing what they were told to do, to be successful, to have a good career, to be able to you know, buy a nice home and have a family. And I think that it's a combination of culture and education where a lot of the change really needs to happen in addition to, for instance, working with the existing industry to workshop things with professionals. Yeah. Maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done around outside of the private markets in particular. I think you did some work for the B-Lab, didn't you, around their kind of report on stakeholder capitalism? I was involved as, I think, I'm not sure exactly how to characterize my involvement. I was one of many people in their network who provided some input into it. So it's a piece they authored and got feedback from various members in the community. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if that was more from a personal front, but I joined a webinar that you held the other day. It was talking about what's the rule for ESG and impact investors and preventing this idea of a corporate liability shield, where I think, as you described it, through corporations in the US are looking at some legislation that would provide them immunity from being sued for exposing employees to the risks of contracting COVID. And so if employees got sick and you know, unfortunately died, then they can't be sued for making employees come into work. Is that the idea? Yeah. And I think that with this corporate liability shield that was being proposed that, I don't know, who knows, might come back next year. Luckily, it was dropped from this package, although the hefty price of also dropping state and local aid. It's very hard to prove where cases of COVID came from. But if an employer or a business like a nursing home If they're obviously negligent in terms of not providing their staff with the proper protective equipment or forcing people to come to work when they're sick with COVID, or there was a situation where apparently some managers at a meatpacking factory bet on which of the workers would get COVID, and there were clearly unsafe working conditions there. Those businesses should be held accountable. And the corporate liability shield would make it very difficult for them to be held accountable and would have lots of implications longer term for other types of abuses, human rights abuses, labor abuses, abuses against customers and clients like the elderly in nursing homes. It would be very hard to hold these companies accountable. And so that's the concern about about the liability shield. And proponents of the liability shield would say, oh, anybody can bring us a, a case, there's going to be this wave of lawsuits against companies for by people who have contracted COVID. But it's not in lawyers' best interest to bring all these lawsuits because most of them are so hard to prove. It's really the most egregious cases that are easier to prove that should be tried in court. And so this is an erosion of democracy if the liability shield goes through. And I think that the thing we were really focused on on the webinar is that where 
did the senators who were proposing this liability shield, like, where did this idea come from? Did it come mm -hmm. from lobbying from the corporate sector? How can responsible investors step in and work with their portfolio companies and asset managers to make sure that we're lobbying against the liability shield? Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. And I'm just painting a picture of some of the other areas of interest for free distribution initiative outside of the kind of strict kind of private equity markets. And this seemed to me one of those, which is I think like a really important conversation that I know it's a US issue here in Canada, so maybe it's a little less directly applicable to me here, but I think it's an important conversation, obviously, for, for the US, but I think even broadly, just because it reminds you of the variety of interests and the variety of issues there are, and the variety of ways that various stakeholders can have an impact on those issues. And this is just like another one that's like, oh, so there's just this lobbying, even aside from just the corporate liability shield, just the broader point about shareholder engagement, but this is outside of the traditional like shareholder engagement, like issues that I tend to think of when I think about that. So it was just a unique application of it for a hyper relevant, timely issue that's going on and affecting us all. Yeah, I think one, one of the ways that this issue really connects to what we're looking at the pre-distribution initiative is that lobbying and political spend by asset managers themselves is an issue. So in private equity, this has particularly come up where asset managers have been known to lobby for surprise medical billing so that their portfolio companies in the healthcare industry can continue to issue these surprise medical bills on patients. Congress, there are some people in Congress who have raised concerns on behalf of their constituents about this. There are people who really can't afford these surprise medical bills. They weren't informed about them in advance. It's really a difficult situation for people who are challenged economically or even not who get these bills and yet the private equity fund managers are lobbying for this and it really begs the question okay when we look at ESG and impact investing there have been a lot of good measurement and management frameworks that have been designed for portfolio companies but what about the fund manager level like what about the activity that the fund manager is actually doing as we've talked about before, the fund manager compensation, is their rate of wealth growing at such a disproportionate rate relative to workers and or beneficiaries of the portfolio companies that wealth grows at a systemically faster, wealth inequality grows at a systemically faster rate than anything at the portfolio company level could address. Leveraging of portfolio companies over leveraging of them, lobbying and political spend, domiciling funds and tax havens, all of these issues should be really captured in our ESG and impact frameworks. If we really want to change capitalism, we can't just look at the portfolio company level as we have been for the past 10 years or so that this has started to get popular. We really have to look at what's going on at the fund manager level as well. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. I realize I want to circle back on what we were talking about before, and I forgot to come back to it. But can you tell us about the solutions, what would you see as some of the ways that we can address the problems that we were discussing around private equity? Some of the solutions that we're looking at in terms of fund structure include a structure of a management fee that's more proportionate with the assets under management. So as a private equity fund manager grows, if it, as it has more private equity funds that it manages, as those private equity funds become bigger, a 2% management fee or 1.5% on tens of billions of dollars of assets under management annually becomes quite significant. And if you look at the public filings of some of the public private equity funds now, you can see how lucrative those management fees become. It's often pure profit. A lot of it goes to the executives of the fund manager. 
So having a management fee that is really designed for what it was originally designed for, which is keeping the lights on of a fund manager and paying the general operating expenses until the profits can come in from the portfolio companies, you shouldn't be paid to accumulate assets. You should be paid to have good performance. So the management fee should really be renegotiated and restructured. And that's something that LPs have been interested in for a long time. But because they're so interested in re-upping, resubscribing with the most oversubscribed fund managers and the largest fund managers, they often don't have the influence that they need to get the fund managers to lower the management fee. So we're hoping that this discussion about as GPs start to market themselves as ESG and impact investors, we hope that this will give LPs additional wins at their sales to say, hey, are are you really practicing what you preach if you're paying yourself and it can help with the management fee discussion? The other thing that we're exploring is whether the profits from the portfolio companies could be shared with workers in the portfolio companies or communities in the case of real assets. And there are a number of different ways that this could be engineered and should be engineered. It should take into account the risk tolerance of the workers or communities themselves, because if you're sharing carried interest, that might require them to, that might be riskier for them in terms of compensation than let's say just paying more annual bonuses or profit sharing up front. But regardless of what happens, there needs to be a narrowing of compensation ratios between the executives of the fund manager and the workers and or beneficiaries of the portfolio companies or the communities that house portfolio company projects. Because as wealth becomes more concentrated, if very few people have significant wealth, then they buy up all the assets, they buy the real estate, they push up the values of those things, and it becomes harder and harder for other people to invest. And there's this vicious cycle of inequality there. The other thing that can happen is a deconsolidation of capital flows coming from the LP level. And so if LPs could work with their existing fund managers and add new fund managers to really get more capital into smaller companies and and more of the economy, then that would be beneficial. And there are a number of folks out there like the Zebras Unite movement and the Kauffman Foundation and Village Capital that are looking at more regenerative investment structures for smaller companies that can produce risk-adjusted returns that could be attractive if structured appropriately into LPs' portfolios to help those LPs meet their required rate of return blended across their portfolio. So that could be a potential solution. And we're working on a paper now. We hope it will come out in February of next year. I think the podcast is coming out in 2021. So in February with a longer list of solutions and a more in-depth analysis of the problems as well. Awesome. I'll be happy to to share that once uh, it's out. Thanks, Dave. Do you have any calls to action for kind of listeners who A, may be interested in wealth inequality, but be maybe more specifically interested in the work you're doing at Pre-Distribution Initiative? Yeah, I encourage everybody to sign up for our newsletter. You can go to our website, which is predistributioninitiative.org. And there you'll be able to stay updated on our latest publications, different workshops that we're going to be hosting. If you're an asset owner or allocator, particularly at the institutional level, but of any level, really would love your thoughts and feedback and to discuss some of these issues in more depth. We don't come to this thinking that we have all the answers. It's a journey for all of us, and we're big believers in co-creation. Same thing with asset managers. Believe it or not, we've had a lot of GPs reach out to us asking for our input on how they can structure to be more regenerative. And I think that it'll be a while until some of the toughest changes we're advocating for happen, but people are listening and it's a really fascinating discussion. We welcome conversations with GPs 
And I encourage everybody to just follow these issues, pay attention to private equity. It's taking increasing share in our economy. And I'm sure you'll find ways to engage with the different actors as you become more informed. So thank you for your interest. And it's a group and team effort. I would say also, if you're a teacher, by the way, coming back to this point about the importance of education, if you're a teacher in sustainable finance, let's talk curriculum because uh, it's time to start changing the paradigm. And a lot of that happens in the classroom. Thank you. I love the work that you're doing. Wealth inequality is a big, one of my major personal interests. And I think all the things you're talking about here is just like, really, there's a ton of issues, but these are some really important issues that have the ability to make uh, a lot of change for a lot of people at scale. Yeah. Thanks for all your work. This is real cool. Thanks so much, Dave. Actually, I had one other thing that came to mind. Can I just yeah. say the other thing is if you are a um, field building organization that has that manages networks of LPs or GPs or asset owners and allocators and asset managers, we're going to be hosting workshops throughout next year and are open to partnerships on those workshops. So happy to discuss that with you as well. Okay, so I'm going to link in the show notes to the Predistribution Initiative website. And if there is any kind of sub links within that, I can link to those as well so we, we can connect. All right. Great. Thanks so much, Dave. Thanks, Delilah. Thanks, everybody. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.